welcome to STEMiverse podcast episode 50. In this episode, Peter and Marcus talk with Nurit Barshai. Nurit is an interdisciplinary artist who works at the intersection of art, science and technology. She is a co-founder of Genspace NYC, a community biotech lab in Brooklyn, New York, ranked by Fast Company among the top 10 most innovative education companies. As an activist and educator working with biological systems, she conducts experiments through creative collaborative inquiries and addresses the ethics and the emerging practices of do-it-yourself biology and citizen science. As the Arts and Culture Program Director at Genspace, she developed content for educational, cultural and outreach programs creating solutions to bridge the arts and biological science. Her research and artistic practice looks into microbial social networks and communication systems, collective collaboration, emergence, soft genetic modification and biomaterial fabrications. Nurit developed collaborative STEAM projects including the NYC Biome Map. She's a co-curator of the bio-art exhibition Cut, Paste, Grow, curator of the Genspace pop-up lab at Biofabricate, has partnered with the American Society for Microbiology for their Agar Art competition and the co-organizer of Nodes and Networks NYC. Nurit is a contributor to the Leonardo ebook MetaLife, Biotechnologies, Synthetic Biology, A Life, The Arts. Her work is featured in the book Biodesign, Nature, Science, Creativity, published by the Museum of Modern Art. Her artwork was commissioned by Turbulence.org, won a Prix Ars Electronica and included in the collection of the Rose Goldson Archive of New Media Art at Cornell University. Nurit held residencies at Tel Aviv University Microbiology Lab of Professor Eshaw Ben Jacob, who studied the social life of bacteria and the Epibone, a bioengineering New York City startup that grows bone tissue for skeletal reconstruction. This is Stemiverse Podcast Episode 50. Stemiverse is a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. Our mission is to help educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. Whether you are a professional or casual teacher teaching in a classroom or a parent or caretaker teaching at home, this podcast brings you the knowledge and experiences of practitioners, academics, entrepreneurs and lifelong learners who are passionate about education and strive every day to help our children prepare for life in a world of radical change and why not abundance. Marcus, it's been a while. It has, Peter. How are you? Uh, I had a little holiday last week. So much better. That's nice. How did that feel? Uh, went down to Wollongong. It was the annual Wollongong Air Show. There's um, uh, like a small airport down there, and every year they bring aircraft new and old mm-hmm. from all around the world. Second World War fighters, um, transport planes, acrobatic planes, helicopters, a lot of helicopters, and it's just like a two-day show. Mm-hmm. I managed to stay for half a day because the kids got bored. <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay. But it was awesome, so I enjoyed that. Cool. Did you get to go inside any planes? I did. I did go inside a DC 
seven from the 60s. Mm-hmm. There's basically nothing in it left. It's just everything was exposed. Right. Uh, it must have been really hard flying and definitely not pressurized cabin. And I also got into a Qantas 747-400. All right, so they brought a plane. Or uh, <laughs> Qantas donated the plane to the airport there. So you can right. actually go at any time and have a tour. Or you can actually go and sit in the cockpit and have a real pilot to explain what all the like the bells and whistles in the cockpit are. Okay, I was thinking, yeah, tour of a seven four seven. Okay, definitely do that. Okay, awesome. So, how, who are we talking to today? We're talking to Nurit. Nurit, Bashai. Hey, hi, Nurit. Hi, <laughs> hi. <Peter. laughs> it's great to have you with us. Where are you at the moment? I am currently in Israel. Yep. And I've been traveling a lot and it's kind of a closing cycle for me because that's where I was born. <laughs> so what, what brings you to Israel or maybe I should say back to Israel on your read? I'm here both on a very interesting uh, research opportunity at the Tel Aviv University, uh, which I'm taking place right now. And I started this year as well as some teaching opportunities that I couldn't resist. I love teaching. I love sharing multidisciplinary knowledge with students and um, being able to create access to maybe subjects or disciplines that they didn't think that they would have before, such as uh, teaching biology to art students and design students. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting cross So what is it that you do? Yeah, take us back. Tell us about yourself. Who are you? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, I was born in Israel, and uh, I guess I had a very ordinary childhood, nowhere to the craziness of the world around me today. (laughs) Mm. And as a child, my family traveled a lot too. We've lived in the Philippines for a few years And I have also a lot of family all over the world. I guess it's part of being uh, Jewish Mm. these days. Just Mm. have a lot of family, mostly in Europe, in in the U.S. So, so I've I think it resonated with me everywhere I went or visited. I always felt that I could stay or I could live any city I came to. I thought I could stay here or imagine how I would live in this place. So this is something that I always felt comfortable with, new places. And and I think it's something that I took with me in my work whenever I encounter a new subject or a new discipline. I never felt fear, but mostly curiosity. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this is something that was really important for me in my life, I guess, just this exploration or taking journeys in places that you don't know. I guess if I think of my childhood, something that you've asked me earlier, what I would tell or think to my 12-year-old of me. And I was trying to think about that because that's a very difficult question. So one of my very early childhood memories, I guess, was as a kid, we used to go with my dad to forests near our house. And I remember how he would uh, turn stones and show us all the creatures that lived or hiding under these storm- stones, like worms and ants and insects. And I remember very strongly these experiences and how exciting and, and surprising it was to, to find all these new things that at first glance you won't see, all these invisible 
worlds hidden from us. And I guess both these experiences of discovering and, and explorations, I guess, really affected the way I work or using art as a medium or using other mediums in integrating it into my art. So you were fascinated by the very small, right? And not just very small, but also very small and alive at the same time? Well, I don't think that's something that I was aware of at that time. And mm. I, I don't think that I could link it directly to what I'm doing now, but mostly about, I guess it's, it's mostly about trying to understand or trying to uncover the things that are not obvious to you at first glance. Mm. Mm. And that there's more to what the eye can see in terms of experimentation, in terms of process, in terms of creativity, rather than the medium itself. So the fact that I am working with biological systems today might actually come from other places rather than these directly insects that I saw back then. <laughs> so tell us about your art because it's uh, quite unique what I've been doing. <laughs> so my journey with art has started uh, really very commonly for my undergrad. I studied at, uh, at Bezalel Art School in Israel, which is in the art department. And later I continued um, in my master's to NYU at ITP, Interactive Telecommunications Program, where technology uh, was uh, my major focus in my work, integrating physical computing and computational. Well, did you work with Tom Ego? Exactly. He's one of my heroes. <laughs> Tom Ego. Yeah, definitely one of the reasons I, I went to ITP, Tom. Mm -hmm. And when I graduated, I had the opportunity to collaborate with really wonderful, fascinating people, mostly in biology world and had the opportunity to meet uh, Oran Katz and Yunat Sur at the time, who founded Symbiotica in Australia <laughs> mm. and um, at MIT, Natalie Kildell from the bioengineering department. And I uh, was working with my fascinating group, the Grafting Parlor. And through these experiences, I... I was exposed to this other world that I was not aware of before. And thinking about this collaborations, I had the opportunity to meet at the time Professor Eshel Ben-Yakob from the Tel Aviv University, who worked with bacteria among his other labs of neuroscience and uh, computational physics. And mm -hmm. uh, meeting other really fascinating people that... Uh, founded the DIY Bio in Boston and coming back to New York made like-minded people that we all wanted to build a lab from different reasons. I really wanted to have my own space where I could uh, conduct experiments rather than going to other people's lab mm -hmm. and other people in gen space were too fascinated by the idea of uh, building their own lab and it took us a year. <laughs> we had a lot of uh, equipment, but it was really hard to find a place uh, when we came with the idea that we want to build a biology lab. It sounds really crazy to most people until we found this wonderful space. So what, yeah. uh, what time frame uh, 
Like, what year is this? Oh, we, um, so I met Professor Eshel Benyakov in 2009. Mm-hmm. And that's the same year that we founded Genspace. And indeed, it took us a whole year until we were able to open it to the public in 2010. So Genspace was initially a, a private lab. Is that how it started? Or was it open to the public from the very beginning? So from the be- very beginning, we opened it to the public. It's just that at the, while we were studying, it was impossible for us to... While we built it and uh, created the space itself, we were meeting at the beginning in other places like the New York City Resistor, who kindly gave us a space for one a day a week where we started uh, calling people to work with us to talk about ideas, to start conducting experiments. Or we met at uh, Dan Grishkin, one of the founders, in his house and invited people there and conducted mm-hmm. experiments in his kitchen. Uh, so it was very hands-on <laughs> DIY. Could you describe those experiments? Like, what are we talking about here? Like, Is it bacteria or chemistry or biology? And how did you not get raided by the FBI? <laughs> <laughs> this has happened. But schools can do it. <laughs> no, no. Like This literally has happened to uh, bio hackerspaces in the US. Oh, I see. Yeah, the times, I suppose. So, indeed, one of of the fears was um, uh, safety, which was, from the beginning, an issue that we took um, very seriously. And, obviously, our first experiments were, I would say, very uh, mature. We didn't do or didn't conduct things that we would think that would um, have a safety issues for uh, the people around us or to ourselves. Uh, when we did open Genspace, we had the opportunity to invite people to train us and uh, kindly the MIT safety officer volunteered to come all the way to New York uh, to give us mm-hmm. a whole workshop about safety issues. Uh, in our opening, uh, we even invited the FBI from the beginning. We were in close relationships with them. <laughs> yes. We were very aware of all the concerns and all the risks, and we didn't want to risk anyone in our community. This is something that we are giving much concern to, both to the projects that uh, members in the community are doing and obviously safety of the people. Genspace is a BSL-1 bicepital level 1 lab. Yeah, we're looking at a picture on the genspace.org website forward slash mission where there's an article about the Genspace story. There's a photograph there about a group of four people doing experiments. I believe that one of those is you, Narit, in 2009, right? Oh, that's a very early picture. <laughs> Most of us are familiar with the traditional type of makerspace, the kind of space where people can get access to things such as 3D printers, laser cutters, CNC machines, and can work with electronics and robots and as such in a communal environment. The kind of space that Genspace is, is a bit like that, except that the projects that people pursue there are in chemistry and biology. I wanted to ask Back in 2009, did you see a need in the community for such a makerspace or did you perhaps anticipate it or were you really scratching your own itch? 
So it's interesting to think about uh, when a lot of the maker spaces in New York, especially in Brooklyn, where Genspace uh, is located, has raised after the 2008 recession. There was big movement back then where people were trying to make their own communities, build their own communities and create their own resources, especially based on what was happening back then in terms of culture and society. And the New York City Resistor, which many of my friends were part of, really affected especially me. But other spaces like the damp community where Genspace initially was located was also a very unique space where a lot of really unique people from all walks of life coming from the MIT Media Lab or from Parsons from ITP came along architects. We had a cupcake factory. We had chickens on the roof. So a very, very unique place where it was an old building in Brooklyn that was accumulated by really creative people. And when my friends heard that we were looking for a space for Genspace, uh, they offered it, us to come and check it out. And uh, so it was really, really affected, or I would say, inspired by the maker movement and uh, I wouldn't see uh, it separated especially in what was happening back then in, in Brooklyn and, and the, the inspiration of Brooklyn back then. So why did you feel the need to create a new type of makerspace? What type of equipment was missing from say a makerspace like New York Resistor and what sort of equipment did you start with and eventually acquired? Right. So I think the thought was when we started Genspace was not to imitate any other spaces, but rather to, because the, we had nothing previously that we could uh, take from. So we really had to come up with something new based on the motivations that each one of us came from. So it was nothing with a written manual or protocol that we thought, okay, let's let's build a space. But everyone knew that all of the founders, we really knew that we wanted to create a lab. So this was the major motivation of creating such a space. It's true that today you could see that many of... So Genspace was the first uh, lab that was open to the public, but today there's about 125 groups. Some of them are labs, some of them are meeting programs, and you could see all of the list on the DIYbio.org website. And a lot of them are coming from makerspaces. Genspace initially was created as a platform where you could have the equipment of a BSL-1 lab, but also the idea was to create a community that would come and meet and talk and take part of experimentation or research, but also a place where we could invite the people for more cultural programs like talks and workshops, education, to share ideas hands-on. So that was something that was really important to have tangible because even back then, uh, and of course today, you could take classes through internet. So you could take a class at Stanford and at MIT and Harvard. Mm-hmm. But it was really important for us to give the opportunity to to actually experience with wet lab work rather than just learn or observe it or hear about it. Do you know the bio 
acre slash hacker space biocurious? Of course, yes. <laughs> How do you guys differ from what they are doing? Or are you doing pretty much the same thing, but just on the other side of the coast? Other coast so I think the unique thing about every lab space is its community and the people that build it. So obviously New York and the community in New York is very different from the community in San Francisco or in Baltimore or in Singapore mm-hmm. or in Paris. And I think, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to compare it. I think this is the strength of having such a variety of biolab. And the citizens, since we're talking about citizen science, the citizens are making the community. So there's a lot of parallels between Biocurious and GenSpace, but there's also the unique things that Biocurious is giving their community and GenSpace is giving their community. I can talk about GenSpace that, especially my background as an artist, I was really trying to bring more of that into the space. And Mm -hmm. I'm really happy to see how in the last few years the art to design aspect is or the discipline of art and and design is uh, more and more integrated and the importance of it with biology is being accepted as a discipline or being uh, acknowledged so this is this is something that i'm really excited to see and i'm also excited to see how programs that we're trying to integrate that uh, combine art design and biology is being uh, explored in other citizen science communities as well. And what have been some of your favorite projects to come out of these spaces? So in terms of tools, <laughs> uh, we are very, very proud of the OpenTrons. Oh, what is that? OpenTron? So the OpenTron, <laughs> yeah. What is uh, a project that you could say now it's a startup with one of our members. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's an automatic robotic arm that automates protocols and it's open. And you can get it from for uh, starting for $4,000. So it really created a a market for those who couldn't afford these uh, machines that cost oh, really okay. thousands of dollars. So this is uh, something very unique. On the other hand, we can see projects like uh, Heather Dewey Hackberg, who's an artist, um, mm-hmm. and her work, um, uh, Stranger Vision, started at Space. And uh, it, it, I really encourage everyone to look at her work. She's just a fascinating artist, really great at what she's doing. Um, she would take samples from bubble gums and hair that she would find in the street. And then she would come back to the lab and would uh, hack these, uh, <laughs> these uh, objects to uh, find their genetic uh, information and compare it to some uh, police profiling. And eventually she would create these uh, sculptures of faces based on this information and talk about the DNA that we leave behind and how DNA profiling is um, subjected to sometimes cultural and social perceptions. So it's really, really Mm -hmm. interesting the way she's working. That's amazing, yeah. Uh, Again, for our listeners, there's information about both of the two items that you mentioned, Nurit, uh, on the Genspace 
Org website under featured projects. The Opatron, I was just looking at the picture, to me it looks like a 3D printer, right? Yeah. But it contains a, I suppose, a robotic um, arm or apparatus that it looks like it's got a syringe component that is able to inject liquids into vials. Uh, test tubes, yeah. Test tubes. It's awesome. And then there's information about the Heather's work as well. Uh, Nurit, I wanted to ask you about art, uh, just to move a little bit away from the technical, since you are an artist and we don't get many of you <laughs> on the podcast. No, um, they, they do cloning now at the hackerspace. We can clone you. So what I wanted to ask is, you know, looking what Heather does, totally out there kind of thinking, uh, I would definitely never have thought of picking up a chewing up and analyzing it, for example. Is this one of the lessons that we in general can learn from art? I'm thinking of how would this kind of thinking help me both as an educator, as an, an engineer? And one thing that comes to mind when we discuss a topic like this one is Einstein and his quote that the world's greatest scientists are also artists. There seems to be an important crossover between science and art. What do you make of that? What can we learn from that? So first, I, I really think we have to add another A, capital A, to STEM education for mm. arts. And as an activist, I would also say we could add uh, an extra A <laughs> uh, for activism, because you could also learn from that a lot. Absolutely. I guess any discipline, any cross-disciplinary processes could lead to any new innovation. And I think this is also how nature works either by accidents or by combining two things that you didn't imagine before to become this, this something new. This is how children are born, right? From two different, very, very different other people, adult people. So why not integrate it into, into practices? And unfortunately, we still learn today in silos. Education is, is, is still unperceptive to to these new notions. So a lot, I hear a lot of people liking to talk about this, but it's really hard to put it in practice. But for example, gen space is, is, is a space that we do want to allow this uh, cross-disciplinary, that uh, once you have a platform that anyone could come to such a space, if it's an architect or an engineer or uh, a dancer or a fashion designer, and we can all ask questions about this biotechnology that is integrated to every aspect of our everyday lives, right? Because mm -hmm. we see it in the food that we eat and we see it in the materials around us. Even our uh, soaps and detergents are probably engineered. And we hear a lot about uh, the fact that we have biological treatments instead of chemical treatment to yeah. things around us. Uh, we have uh, tissue culture engineering that has uh, enabled us to uh, start thinking about how we can uh, grow our organs in the lab. We think about uh, biological systems as, um, as a replacement for computational systems. So we start thinking about how biotech is really um, becoming this new living blocks of, of our lives. Uh, we can create new materials today with living systems so the question would be, who who can do all these really amazing things? Yeah. Is it only 
biologists or can anyone be part of this uh, wonderful new world around us? Yeah. So my next question is this. My artistic skill in any kind of art is practically non-existent. While I understand science, I find it hard to apply art in my teaching and work in general. I believe that this is true for many other teachers in STEM. What advice do you have for people like me? How can art-challenged people like me start to integrate art into our regular STEM curriculum? Right. So first, I would like to separate between art as a language and creativity in general. And it's true that you could say that you could learn through art, but I wouldn't say that this is a motivation when one creates art. It is part of a learning uh, experience, but I don't think that when one makes art, this is the goal. And I also, sometimes I have difficult that people will, especially in, in the sciences, would think about using art to promote the science. And for me, integrating art and the sciences are process of collaboration. And the idea that you could use sciences to create as an artistic act and vice versa. So for those who are interested to use creativity (laughs) rather than art, I would say, in their process, is something else because I think that the greatest architects are artists and the greatest um, surgeons are artists as well. And uh, you could say it on any right. profession, right? You could say the the, the best, uh, the greatest chefs are artists, and and so on. But creativity in in the classroom or creativity is something that could be beyond a specific language or a specific motivation. And that could be integrated in classroom in any means that uh, one teacher can come up with. And I'm sure that in any scale, from the students to the teachers to the to schools in general, you could uh, integrate creativity. The main objective here, what I called a challenge earlier, is really creativity. You don't pursue art itself directly, right? At least in a makerspace as opposed to an atelier. Right. And creativity for me is a lot about problem solving. And this is also something that I could see within bacteria, even, how how they conduct problem solving. But they do problem solving as a, a collective, which is even more fascinating, because we can learn a lot of, from them, from bacteria itself. So me and Mark are worried that as we add more letters into STEM, such as A, to get STEAM, uh, then we can also get STREAM, which adds an R for reading, or even, I heard lately of E-STREAM, which adds another E for entrepreneurship. That will end up with an educational paradigm that can be practically impossible to develop into a curriculum that a teacher can deliver to a class. It's just too many letters in this acronym description of what the uh, curriculum or the educational paradigm is. I'd like to ask you what you think about all this. So I see a lot of, I mean, is this, if this is the fear of the new, because it's uh, not integrated yet, only by maybe people do it individually in their classrooms already, rather than the system encouraging it. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if this is a regular practice that when 
the new comes, we tend as humans to fear, fear mm-hmm. the new and uh, not know at first how to integrate or think that this might harm us. And we see it a lot in technology when the camera was introduced. So we were afraid of that. And then when television was introduced, we were afraid of that. And we blamed uh, education. And then when computer games came and uh, we blamed them for corrupting us. So I don't know if it's uh, we can compare all these things, but um, I don't think that the new is or new ideas should compromise the past, but rather add to them or enable us new platforms to to innovate upon them. And this is something that individual teachers could take each one as they feel comfortable, rather than we can see how the system and the broad could encourage teachers to use these creative tools rather than... um, put strict rules about what they can or can't do. Yeah, really the STEM, it's not not even an acronym the way that I understand it, right? It's a philosophy of education. Now, what exactly you put in and what you combine in order to help students understand perhaps a concept that develops skills, like as you mentioned earlier, creativity, that is really up to the teacher, isn't it? Exactly. But the system, in my view, can enable it or can create a platform that is open enough for introducing uh, new tools or what can we add, what kind of uh, tools we can add to our toolbox in the future, just like 3D printers are becoming uh, an educational tool that enables creativity. I just met uh, this week someone who's teaching English through 3D printers Mm. Uh, through animation and animation through 3D printers. So I think this is fantastic. I mean, who would thought that you could teach English through animation? But this is something he's doing in his classroom. I didn't know exactly about his program because I just briefly met, but I just thought that it was fantastic that he found his own tools to teach something and enable the students to ask questions. That's something that is so obvious. Yeah, like learning a language the traditional way involves, you know, the traditional tools and many, many years of hard work. I suppose that never goes away, but he found a different way to achieve that result. Right. Or engaging the students and reaching the same same goal. But um, I think the process could be individually created. And this is also something that today technology is encouraging, not only in education, but we could see it also in in economics. We could see it in the industry. This is something that, for example, 3D printers brought to the way we can perceive life, that we could create mass production, but um, it's all... I would call it unique copies Mm. because each copy could be completely unique from the other, yet it is a mass, it is mass produced. And this is something that happens in nature naturally, Uh, these, these concepts of unique copies. So why not integrate it into education as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just, I've got one more gen space related question and then we can move into rapid fire questions. Um, (laughs) <laughs> very interesting because uh, in rapid up fire questions, we'd like to get a lot of actionable materials from you. <laughs> but, uh, more of that in a minute. So, 
I'm looking at GenSpace, and I know that you also have programs and classes uh, for educators as part, perhaps, of their professional development, but also classes for students. Could you tell us a little bit about them and what are your objectives as, as an organization uh, in relation to those opportunities? Right. So when we started GenSpace, one of the uh, very first things we did was develop our education program, which was um, very important for us. And it has been part of our major programs um, at GenSpace. So the opportunities to bring not only adult education, but also being able to support uh, schools, especially uh, around our community, was very uh, important for us to involve our community. So I, I would say a lot of the, the schools are under-resourced in New York uh, City and, and around the country. And we really wanted to support students around the city, especially in, in our community and give some opportunities to these students uh, coming to GenSpace to conduct experiments and to learn. But also uh, a recent project is to enable them a residency which where they can come and develop their own projects. We also support uh, training part of the DNA barcode mm-hmm. um, project with the DNA Learning Center. DNA barcode. Yes. Yes. It's a great project that's started by the DNA Learning Center uh, called Spring Harbor. And uh, the idea is to enable students, high school students, to learn more about uh, synthetic biology, bioengineering, and analyze uh, genetic information about the things uh, around them. And if you know the Sushi Gate, which was a huge thing a few years ago, started by two high school students who found that the fish in the sushi was uh, was not the fish that oh, the restaurant right, right. declared, right. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or the cheese in the supermarket was um, from cow rather than Good. from. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so this inspired other schools to start investigating about uh, things around them. And some of the students would uh, find out about organic food versus non-organic food. Other students would be interested um, to find which uh, food around them was uh, genetically modified or just about um, the origins of organisms around them and so on. So it's very diverse and each year they have a competition and they come up with all these really amazing projects. Other programs that we are involved with is the BioRocket, which is storytelling that we invite students and then they can come. They can work um, during the spring and then they can stay over the summer to conduct their own experiments and to come up with a research experience with mentors at GenSpace. So this is, this is part of the educational programs for students rather than for adults. We have a lot of other adult education programs at GenSpace. I'm looking at your classes on the GenSpace website and it's really amazing. If I was in New York, I'd attend them all. Yeah, I want to take them all <laughs> and I don't have uh, the time or the opportunity. So yeah, it's just growing, growing and we're very proud of our education and culture yeah. programs. So my last question in this segment is whether we can replicate GenSpace in other parts of the world. And in in your case, what was the biggest obstacle that you had to overcome? 
Um, I could say that on any, it, it might be a good advice for any startup or any organization. I think it's the human capital mm -hmm. because um, even if you do have resources and space, <laughs> which is the practical part of uh, starting a new uh, lab, it's, it's the human capital. It's who, who you're doing it with. And it's all, it's, eventually it's all about relationships, right? And uh, what people bring along with them how it stays so so that's the biggest thing that's the biggest um that's the biggest obstacle as well with the right people anything is possible we can go to mars if we want and we can definitely build a gen space in sydney marcus rapid fire time you want to take number one yeah absolutely so who has been the most influential in shaping the way you teach uh wow i wouldn't know about a specific person but i think it's accumulation of so many experiences and something you bring and develop yourself throughout the years but the the one thing that i could really say is that you just have to try and if something works then you can try again and again one thing that was really important for me all through my teaching is bring both the philosophical or the historical background of things, but also the hands-on experience. This is something that was always so, so bring history together with uh, tangible experience. And uh, I always believe that students learn from a variety of experience. Some, some are better uh, listeners and some need visuals and some need the actual touch to things and using all your senses is so important in teaching uh, to adults and to kids as well and trying to combine these different experiences in the class is part of my my personal teaching experience and because I'm coming from art I think you have more possibilities and more resilient towards it so nobody would tell you that you're doing something wrong mm. <laughs> because it's always under the umbrella yeah. of art so it's, there's there's less right and wrong but mostly what you could achieve from these experiences and the freedom and that gives you a lot of freedom i don't know if other disciplines would be able to adopt mm -hmm. <laughs> these uh, practices because they have more set of rules. But part of being an artist is being a hacker, mm -hmm. being a maker, being able to take all these uh, measurable uh, settings and rules and try to create some, I'd say, chaos or try to create opportunities that... Uh, you wouldn't have thought otherwise. And from these small opportunities, you would be able to discover new things or you would be able to let those who are more silent or shy uh, to bright and shine out. And, and this is, I think, the unique, the unique thing about using uh, art practices in, in my classrooms. But I wouldn't know otherwise because that's where I come from. So I, I don't know anything else, but... But doing this and using these tools 
in my own work as well as in my teaching. So there's many roads lead to learning, just one size. <laughs> yeah. All the these different types of learning and that every individual student is. So that's a good advice for any teacher out there. Try different things, accommodate different needs. Got uh, one more. Now this is uh, <laughs> normally uh, Marcus asks, uh, what's your favorite programming language? But especially for Unirid, I would like to ask you, what's your favorite bacteria? <laughs> uh, that's an easy one. Or actually not when I'm thinking about it. So I have a favorite, um, I wouldn't say one bacteria, but more um, a species, which is the Banibacillus. Mm -hmm. These are ground bacteria. So they live uh, very close to roots of plants and vegetables. Maybe something to tell us about roots. And they're very intelligent bacteria. I'm working with three of these species, the Penibacillus vortex and uh, the Penibacillus uh, CNT. And um, I have to say that in different periods in my work, I loved one more than the other, but I do love all three of them in different ways. <laughs> so, um, but they're very unique in, in terms of, um, they're, they're considered to be smart bacteria, so, so to say. And they, found, they were found about 20 years ago by Professor Eshel Benyavkov, who I've been working with. And um, it's really unique because bacteria, when you think about it, these are single cells, but they work together as a multi-cell organism. And, um, and they're everywhere. And this is something fascinating to see how a colony, a collective of parts can work together uh, make decisions together. Dominate the world. So that was unique. And dominate the world and us yes, as well. Absolutely. Our body, right? our environment. Yeah. Okay, one more. Uh, we always like to complete our bookcase with interesting books. And uh, we'd like to ask you for one or two book recommendations so that we can explore more of the, of the, the things that we've been discussing. Um, I think on growth and form would be um, something that um, I would recommend. Sorry, growth on growth and form. Uh, something else that um, I would recommend is the chemical basis of uh, morphogenesis by Turing, mm. Alan Turing. Mm. So a lot of people don't know but Alan Turing was very much interested in biology as well as in computation. And he's one of the first who actually studied the, the morphology and the environment and the impact of environment on morphology, which is so fascinating. So, wow, Alan Turing, the computer scientist that changed, have, well, contributed in the Second World War's um, ending uh, he was also, like, was he a professional biologist or would you call him a... I think he was just interested in patterns in nature and the mathematics behind it. And um, as everything else in his life, he was just a brilliant person yeah. in that room as well. Any parting thoughts for our listeners? Any do's, don'ts or lookouts? I would say listen more to your bacteria. <laughs> they are all in your guts. <laughs> so I love the term gut yeah. filling. Uh, some people say that it's our second brain. And as opposed, I like to think about it as opposed to our fixed brain, 
in the top of our head. Uh, this one is more elusive. We, we exchange it with other people, with plants, with animals, and it comes and goes through our body, within our body. It depends on the, the things that we eat, on how much sun we, we're exposed to. So there's something about the bacteria that resides in us that, um, because eventually we know today more and more about, and we understand that it sends a lot of messages to our brain, and we act upon all these messages. We still don't know much about it, but we just, we're starting to understand how our brain works both from rational, but also probably from messages that we get from within these gut hmm. bacteria. So maybe there is something about our guts feeling <laughs> that we should listen more yeah, to. Absolutely. Can our yeah. listeners contact you? And if so, what is the best way to do so? Um, through my email would be good, either through my uh, John Space email, nuri at johnspace.org, or through my personal email. It's n at nuritbarshai.com. So everyone who's interested I'll be happy to. Brilliant. We'll add it, right. we'll add it to you. the show notes. Uh, I also uh, got to ask, uh, when are you doing an exhibition here in Australia? <laughs> uh, I'd love to come to Australia. I've never been. Absolutely. That would be so amazing. Yeah. Uh, right now, I'm looking at your website. My website is so on up to date, <laughs> so I, I would not encourage your listeners oh, to go okay. there. This is part of being uh, an activist artist uh, is I'm always engaged with the work rather than documenting it so I'm yeah. not as good as documenting it as actually making but uh, currently a work is being installed and in, there's a new uh, natural history museum is being uh, is opened in Israel it's in uh, in Tel Aviv yep. I'm I'm so I mean, on one hand, it's really sad that there was no natural history museum in Israel until now. I'm really excited yeah. that there is now. And they have uh, a, a new exhibition there, apart from their permanent exhibition, and uh, two of my works are going to be there. Uh, That's great. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to look for an opportunity to yeah. have a look at your work uh, up close. And uh, there's quite a, a bit that I can like, look at photographs etc on the web so i'm going to try and make a good collection of them for the show notes of this episode i can also send you yes, information please. obviously it'd be great so, to have it yeah. in, in one place so Nurit, thank you very much for your time it was thank you excellent like a thank experience you. talking to you it's definitely you. something different for me what about you marcus completely different <laughs> absolutely thank you so much for inviting me thank you Nurit. That's all for this episode. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with Nurit are available on our website, texplore.com forward slash pay forward slash STEMiverse. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a gold mine of information in the notes. This STEMiverse podcast episode was produced by Tech Explorations. Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a friend or colleague to be our guest? Please email us at pa at txplore.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That's S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. 
thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.